Hi there, and welcome to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for Wednesday, September 30th. Coming up, new COVID-19 modeling for the province, the passing of music greats Helen Rennie and Mac Davis, and the last day for parents in Toronto to decide if their kids will switch to online learning. All of that coming up right now on the Jeff MacArthur Podcast. The province unveiling some pretty eye-popping new modeling when it comes to COVID in Ontario. Joining us now to break it all down, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family doctor and vaccine researchers on the line, and joins us here on Global News Radio. Dr. Gorfinkel, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Okay, the projection is 1,000, 1,000 cases a day by the middle of October. We're about to change the calendar. We're only about 15 days away. Is it too late to reverse that? Has the die been cast, do you think? No, I do not believe it has died and cast at all. I think there's a lot still within our control. I'm super excited about the testing measures that he's bringing in. I think they do make a lot of sense as long as we use them wisely. So what we have here is... You know, we started out with 145 testing centers in Ontario. Last week, he promised us 60 additional testing centers through pharmacies, and now that number has been increased to 80 testing centers in pharmacies, 80 plus 145. So what that means is that we're going to have faster access to testing, which is great. But the question is, can we ramp up the time it takes to get the test results? Because right now it can take up to four days. 25% of the results are given within 24 hours. Dr. Eileen Davila has said she wants to increase that to 60% of our results within 24 hours. And on top of it, we now hear that Health Canada has, has approved just recently a new rapid test. So that, that again raises the ante. Imagine if we could get our results within 15 minutes. How cool would that be? Yeah, well, let's talk about that a little bit, because Ottawa has just announced this, that they, of course, uh, we found out yesterday, had purchased, uh, the federal government had 8 million, nearly 8 million rapid test kits. This afternoon, voila, Health Canada all of a sudden approves them. Timing aside on the approval, just uh, how does rapid testing, how does it change the dynamic? How does it change things? So the test which was approved is done with a nasal swab. Unfortunately, this is not a home test that people can do themselves, a health provider of some sort. It does require minimal training, but it does require some training. So we swab the nose, and then within 15 minutes can get a result. You know, so clearly I have not done this test as yet, nor has any physician, but soon we will have access to this sort of testing. And it will be for those who are asymptomatic. Those who are higher risk, I would imagine, still will have to go to testing centers. But imagine if it's within 15 minutes. But it does have downside. And the downside of rapid testing is they're less accurate than the current nasopharyngeal swab testing. So while the nasopharyngeal swab testing, it's more uncomfortable, it's reaching all the way back, it does take up to four days to get that sort of accuracy. And it is still considered the gold standard. It is still has its best utility in areas which, which have seen low number of cases. So that's fine. You know, the rapid tests are fine to use in a place like Toronto or in Montreal where we're seeing high numbers of cases. But unfortunately, accuracy significantly falls in those areas that are seeing very few cases. All right. And the accuracy rate on the rapid test, do you know offhand uh, what that is? Uh, I've seen projections of uh, 80%. I think the premier actually in his press conference we just aired uh, said somewhere in the area of uh, 90 or just over 90% accuracy. No, that's not accuracy. What that means is sensitivity. So if you have 100 people who have it, 
it'll pick up 97 of them. That sounds great, doesn't it? But imagine if only one in 10,000 people in your community have the disease. Then what you wind up having is a lot of false negatives. So in other words, people are being told they don't have it when they do, or they do have it when they don't. So the test falls in accuracy if the numbers within the community are very low. So that's just a statistical thing. So there's accuracy, which is different than how sensitive or how specific the test is. And I know it gets confusing, but the bottom line is in, in areas like Toronto, where there's lots of cases, it's a good test to use. But in areas that are, I don't know, say northern areas or more rural areas that have seen very few cases, it's a poor quality test to use. The accuracy falls rapidly. Yeah, so places where the lineups aren't as long, uh, you want to go, obviously, with the gold standard where you can. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Then then you're much better off with the standard nasopharyngeal swab testing that takes up to four days. Okay, since we are talking uh, Toronto and the number of cases here, half of today's new cases, and the number was uh, just over 600, 625, I believe, memory serves. Half of those uh, new cases today are right here in Toronto do you think, doctor, we need a more aggressive approach here in the city when it comes to containing COVID? I think the concept of individuals believing that it is a disease that affects other people has to be let go of. We have to function as a cohesive community. You know, so the, the standard things that we're doing to prevent the number of cases, hand washing, physical distancing, masks, they matter and they matter a lot. So rapid testing is something new in the armamentarium. I mean, it's great to have that, right? It's, it's important to understand. If you're asymptomatic, get tested. Like, it's still worthwhile. Get, get your test done. It's much more available so that you can then quarantine because that is the key. I, rapid identification. In the United States, it's interesting. They do more than twice the number of tests we do here, and yet their rate of transmission is far greater. And the reason for that is that time delay on tests. So what we're seeing here with the authorization of, you know, the sudden approval of this rapid testing is we're trying to get that number down to an absolute minimum. We're removing the barriers to testing, and we're also trying to get that time to test results to an absolute minimum. So I'm excited about those changes. Okay, so the, the testing is, sorry, one piece of the puzzle, but if we're looking at a city like a Toronto, which is maybe the hottest of hot spots right now with half of the new cases, do we really have to look at rolling back uh, and uh, reintroducing some restrictions, do you think, uh, here in the city? It's all incremental. So it's not like any one thing is, is the land of perfection. What we have is a bunch of imperfectly working parts that together as a whole reduce the number of cases. That's the way to understand it. So this isn't to replace masks. This is not to replace social distancing. It's an addition. And so it is important. And I think the changes that we saw Ford make in the last couple of weeks are hugely important, you know, in terms of reducing the number of people who are allowed to congregate both indoors and outdoors. It all It's all additive. All right, Doctor, I also want to ask you before we run out of time, uh, the modeling is suggesting 1,000 new cases per day by mid-October if things don't change and change quickly. But we're also seeing the modeling tell us that uh, demographics, it's all age groups that are now being uh, affected by uh, COVID, just not you know young people or under 40s that it's starting to spread amongst uh, all different age demographics. How concerning is that? Well... <laughs> 
it's a different type of illness, right? So I think the concept has to be shaken. We talked about this a little last week, right? We don't want people to believe, because I'm young, I'm safe. This is a multi-system inflammatory disease. And so far, we've been really good at counting the number of people who wind up in ICU or wind up eight feet under. I hate to put it that way, but that's true. But what we really don't know and understand well is just what are the long-term ramifications in young adults? What's going to happen? You know, what we do know is there is such a thing as long haulers. And we know that patients who come out of hospital are very sick with it for a long time afterward. So bearing that in mind, we have to take on the, the headspace of this is not just about me. This is about what can I do for my society, for my community, to keep the numbers low, because it may turn into being about me. Yeah, and if the spread is not just 20-somethings any longer, if it's moving into those higher age groups, is there a concern that those are the ones that are going to need hospitalization, and that's where we're going to see our ICUs uh, balloon when it comes to uh, patients, uh, the number of patients? Absolutely. And, you know, consider, too, that Canada has one of the lowest number of acute acute hospital beds per population in the entire Western world. Like, that's actually true. We're number 11 out of 12. We have Mm. very few acute care hospital beds, and we have even fewer ICU beds. It's about one per thousand. So you try to do the math on this. You know, if we're getting 1,000 cases a day and individuals who are 60, you know, with chronic conditions – are, those are the highest risk patients. It does not take a large number to totally hose us. And that's why mitigation, the strategy of keeping the numbers down, is so critical. So phase one, we were hugely successful. We managed to mitigate the number of cases. So the question remains, can we do that as we enter phase two? All right. Dr. Gorfinkel, really appreciate the time as always. Thank you so much uh, for both your time and perspective. Many thanks, Jeff. All right, talk again soon. There's Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family physician, vaccine researcher. All right, we lost a couple of music greats, including the great uh, Helen Reddy. Got to word of that uh, early today. Best known for that song right there, of course, we just heard, I Am Woman. Here's our music expert, Eric Elper. He joins us now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Eric, uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. You know, with Mac Davis and Helen Reddy passing away at the same age of 78, I think that my 70s TV viewing just died a little bit more. Yeah, let's talk first about uh, Helen Reddy and that song we just heard, I Am Woman. That is a song that has, I think, as much meaning, if not more today, than it did when it originally hit in the early 70s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you people have to remember if they don't, you know, just what a what a struggle and a battle women's rights were and what the women's liberation movement was all about with the help of some very high profile activists like Gloria Steinem and Ms. Magazine. And when Helen Reddy first released I Am Woman, it stiffed. It didn't do well at all. And it took the women's movement to use it as their own personal anthem. And then it started shooting up the charts, finally hitting number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and earning her a Grammy for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. But at the time, you know, there weren't a lot of um, political 
activist songs that have to do with the women's movement back then. Not not in the same way of what we're seeing now with the Black Lives Matter or the Me Too movement, but certainly she absolutely was a trailblazer um, that I think a lot of female performers should give thanks to for the work that she did, especially during a real heavily male industry of the music industry where it was really tough for women to break through period Mm -hmm. was she obviously a trailblazer but uh was helen ready in that song just uh obviously ahead of its time is that why it kind of stiffed originally do you you think until uh you know the rest of us sort of caught up with helen ready in that song yeah i i think part of it was just right song wrong time and sometimes you know when you and i when we talk to artists it's always about luck too. You know, when she first moved from Australia, where she was born, to New York in order to um, kind of, you know, go for a record contract, Capitol Records signed her. She recorded several singles and that climbed the charts. But then, you know, when they first released this one, um, it didn't do well. It, it, there wasn't just that connection to the song. People thought, oh, that's a nice little song there. But I think when you have a couple of people in positions of power that use your song or your film or your TV or your piece of art in order to claim it as their own, in order to make it a definite centerpiece of your movement, that's when it becomes almost inescapable. And that's exactly what happened with with Helen Reddy back in in the early 70s. I mean, the, the, the song was first released in 1971. It was absolutely ahead of its time. Yeah, I was really struck by an interview I was reading earlier today that she did back in 2012 with the AP, the Associated Press, and she said one of the reasons that she stopped singing was that uh, she actually come across an American History a high school textbook. There was a chapter on feminism, and she said, my name and my lyrics to that song, they were there in that book, and I thought, well... Listen, I can't do any better than that. I'm a part of history now. I can't top that, so it's pretty easy to take a step back off the stage. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm sure a lot of her would want to disagree with that thing to, you know, continue and, and, and still sing and perform the songs that are meaningful to you. But, you know, you forget how big she was after... You know, after that hit, it was like, I remember watching her on the Carol Burnett show. She sung the song on the Muppet show. She had her own TV variety show, just like Matt Davis had. I mean, she was in my all-time favorite kids movie, Pete's Dragon, which I thought was absolutely brilliant, right. um, where she sung Candle on the Water. That, that got her an Oscar nomination. So, you know, when we talk about one-hit wonders, yeah, you know, it's a little bit wonky with her because she might be known specifically for that hit, but, you know, I, I'm sure that she'll take that, but she absolutely did her job with making sure that that song got out there. By the way, her death today comes a less than three weeks after the, the release of a biopic about her called I Am Woman, which uh, I was fortunate enough to screen a few weeks back. We had one of the stars with us uh, on the morning show, and great viewing if uh, people uh, want to see that and remember the uh, life of uh, Helen Reddy. Mentioned Mac Davis a couple of times. We also lost him, uh, got word today, uh, Eric, also at the same age of 78. Tell us a bit about uh, Mac Davis, his influence, particularly in the world of country music. Yeah, you know, before Mac Davis became a household name back in the mid-1970s with his own TV variety show, he wrote two of the greatest songs that Elvis Presley ever recorded. The first one was In the Ghetto, and the other one wasn't so much of a massive hit, but one of my personal favorites called A Little Less Conversation, which, you know, almost 35 years later... Nike ended up using that song for their World Cup anthem that stormed it back up the charts when a DJ named Junkie XL 
did a remix of it. But, you know, he had so many massive hits in the country world, like Baby Don't Get Hooked on Me, uh, Stop and Smell the Roses, and One Hell of a Woman. He was named Entertainer of the Year by the Country Music Association. He beat out Merle Haggard and Loretta Lynn. So, I mean, that's just how big he was. And he was, you know, to me growing up, and I think to a lot of people that, that remember him, um, not necessarily as adults, but as, as kids or as teenagers, he was like the pre-good old boy in the Dukes of Hazards, he had curly hair, he had blue eyes, he was stunningly beautiful. He could sing a song based on an audience um, uh, notification of a word. He would say, you know, somebody throw out a word and it could be elephant. And then he would write a song about elephant and perform it literally on stage in a minute. Um, really, really classy guy, highly entertaining to watch. And, uh, you know, if people like country music, especially the, the, the old-time country music of Johnny Cash or Loretta Lynn, uh, and you haven't looked in the catalog of Mac Davis, this is your time to do it. Yeah, listen, I grew up on uh, Kenny Rogers. That was my parents' favorite, but I think a, a close second was uh, Mac Davis. Uh, Hard to be humble, right? That that was one of his, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 It, was, it was covered by Willie Nelson on, on his last album that came out last year called Ride Me Back Home. I mean, you talk to any songwriter in Nashville, Matt Davis has to be right up there in the top two. I mean, there's certainly a lot of, of songwriters that have made their mark. But, you know, for about 15, 20 years, he's at the top of the game better than anybody else going when it came to Nashville and country music. Um, you know, and Elvis still end up recording a couple of more singles, including Memories and Don't Cry Daddy, which, again, weren't massive hits. But the fact that Elvis Presley has chosen four of the songs that you wrote, it puts you right up there with some of the greatest songwriters that he ever picked. So. Yeah, I always wonder about this when you hear these uh, stories, and I've never uh, seen an interview with Mac Davis where he commented about this but, you know, in the ghetto, my goodness, what a song. And I often wonder when you become a singer yourself later on and get some notoriety and fame, do you think to yourself, why did I give that one away? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mac David just did a couple of interviews with some podcasts that I heard earlier this year. And Mac David really didn't have a choice. Nobody was listening to him. Um, you know, so it wasn't like if he would have put it out, it, it, you know, the entire world would have been listening. It made perfect sense at the time, because that's what he did back in Memphis, Tennessee. He was really just a songwriter, and, you know, he changed the name um, from it being in the ghetto, which kind of had those connotations of New York and Harlem, because in 1968-69, that city, along with Memphis and a couple of others in the U.S., was just a political hot fire. And it was originally written about a Chicago ghetto, ghetto, and it turned out that they actually changed it um, to Harlem connotation because Harlem was in the news all of that time. And Elvis Presley, who definitely had one foot in the gospel world, definitely looked towards his heroes and heroines in the in the black gospel world, in the R&B world, absolutely wanted to pay tribute and give those people a voice, people that didn't really have a voice in the beginning. You bet. Eric Alper, thanks for helping us remember a couple of true legends, Mac Davis, and of course the great uh, Helen Reddy, both uh, dying today at the age of 78. Eric, appreciate thanks. it as always. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. We'll talk soon. You got it. Music expert Eric Alper. Well, if you've got a child in a TDSB school, you've got a pretty big decision in front of you. You must decide today whether or not you're going to put your child into virtual learning or keep them in the classroom for the rest of the year. Merritt Stiles is the Ontario NDP education critic and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Merritt, good afternoon and thanks for joining us. 
Oh, thanks for inviting me. All right. uh, Tough one. Tough decision here. Do we know why parents are being forced to make that decision by end of day today? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, as you've seen, I think, and like parents uh, across Ontario have been going through this, but it's been it's been tough the last few weeks. Uh, uh, School boards have been really scrambling. There's been a lot of upheaval in in the case of the TDSB. You know, a lot of those kids uh, didn't actually get to meet their their virtual online teachers or classes until uh, really late in the late in the in the month, and and so it it makes sense in a certain way for the TDSB to want to have some certainty, you know, uh, to be able to plan forward as much as they possibly can. But look, uh, you know, I'm a parent of a grade 11. Uh, we had this conversation, and and I I sympathize with every parent out there who feels like they they don't know what things are going to look like a, 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 a tomorrow, let alone two weeks or two months from now. Um, but it, it is, I think, one of those uh, issues that the school boards have to deal with in order to be able to try to plan ahead uh, to where their teachers are going to be and, and what kind of staff they need. Okay, and I want to get to that in just a second. And I understand the need for the uh, school board or their want for some certainty, but we are living in very uncertain times, mm-hmm. obviously. So are parents, as I think you just indicated a moment ago. And as we've seen, when it comes to the pandemic, things change and sometimes rapidly. So should parents be forced to make kind of this ultimate decision for their kids, whether they're going to stay in the classroom or not, again, by the end of day today? Is that fair to them? Well, look, I mean, I'll be honest. I, I don't think we ever, should, none of this should have ever come to this place that we're in right now. And, and with the number of schools increasing with, in cases in, in Toronto, but actually all across the province, uh, you know, it is starting to look like we're headed towards some bigger decisions. Uh, Doug Ford uh, and Stephen Lecce have have said they're not going to they're, they're not planning to close schools to close down all the schools. Um, and and I'm certainly not advocating that by any means. But but I think that like a lot of parents, we you know we're all wondering if this can con- continue in the direction it has, and that's why we were really pushing hard, and we continue to uh, to push the government to make some changes. Uh, to to make those class sizes smaller so we can increase the distancing between students so that we have you know fewer of these these classroom closures so that fewer families are impacted by that um, this is the kind of thing that I think would have meant a, a smoother transition and and would keep our kids in school longer but look at the end of the day um, even if your child is is not in the online registered for online if schools or classrooms close then there will be some sort of transition to online anyways. Well, let's talk about online learning because we have heard from various school boards that they're just not equipped or, or ready, that uh, you know they're asking for 500 additional uh, teachers in uh, one case to uh, handle the uh, load when it comes to online learning. As you well know, we're, I mean, six, six and a half months into this pandemic now. Do we not have time to plan to be ready for this? Is this a failure? Oh boy, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I would, I would call it a failure. And I, and I, you know, I know that this has been pretty unprecedented times. But you got to ask yourself, you know, what was the government doing between, you know, okay, give them a couple months, but say May and September. Um, you know, we we were putting forward emergency action plans as a, as a, in the opposition. Uh, we were urging them. I was meeting with the minister, and and yet still, it felt very much like the government had sort of thrown together a plan in August and then kept changing things. And that's what's really messed things up also. It's just this constant shifting and changing and inconsistent messages, which I think is kind of, to be fair, like not unlike what we've seen in a lot of elements of the, the response to the pandemic is, 
is a lack of clear communication, a lack of transparency. And, you know, we're seeing it now with the with the outbreaks in long-term care. You know, you shake your head and go, well, do we not learn anything? Uh, why are we just this week uh, seeing announcements of, you know, how the government's going to deal and make, you know, reforms to long-term care? We should have been doing that months and months ago. And, and I really don't think, see there's any excuse for it. Okay, we have an LTC expert on standby. We're going to talk to them in less than 10 minutes after we're done speaking with you here. So more on that uh, momentarily for the audience. But uh, let me ask you about the modeling that was unveiled today for the uh, province in the projections of 1,000 cases per day by uh, mid-October. What is your and your party's reaction to that? Well, you know, it. I again, I think what's, what's really concerning today. Well, obviously the projections are concerning, um, but but the government knew that a second wave was coming. Uh, I think we all knew a second wave was possible. The question is, are we, have we been prepared enough for this? And when we saw the government rolled out their little, their, their, their plan or the final elements of their plan today, I think what's notable is what's not there. You know, we, we, we aren't seeing um, the, the, the full-time jobs for PSWs in long-term care for the, for the personal support workers. We aren't seeing, you know, uh, raising them up above part-time minimum wage jobs, which we know is really important. We, we aren't seeing the paid sick days. And, you know, we're also not seeing, and I have a lot of small businesses like we all have across the city in my riding, we're not seeing the kind of financial help that those small businesses and those workers need if we're going to be locking down again. And I think that's really frightening because, you know, we've seen some of those small businesses survive, but barely. And now I'm hearing from a lot of them that they don't think they can make it if we shut down again. So, so I think that a lot of people are really worried right now, as, as am I. And I don't think that what we saw in this plan was what people were expecting. It's not the big, bold plan that we need in this moment. What is missing from the Ford plan as far as the NDP is concerned? What is the uh, one thing that you would do differently or change that would have an immediate impact, do you think? Well, I mean, I'm going to, I would say, I'll give you a couple things. Um, The classroom caps. Uh, If the government had just said, look, we're going to keep all our classrooms at 15 and below, that would immediately mean that just when we, when when you have a case, which we will have, we will have cases, then that doesn't impact, you know, 30 families. It impacts 15 families. It doesn't mean that 30 families have to stay home from work. It's 15. It's just going to have a slightly different impact on, you know, our economy and the ability of people to get back to work and, you know, hopefully less people get sick. And, and I think the other big one is, I have to say, has got to be around long-term care. You know, we've, we've seen so many families lose loved ones. Uh, there are lessons learned from that. And what's extraordinary to me is that here we are six months, seven months later, and, and the government still hasn't put in place the kind of protections, infection control protections, support for workers um, that we need. And so, uh, for example, I just found out that a, a long-term care facility in my riding, uh, they have 29 people already sick. One died yesterday. Uh, you know, we're back at it. And we, we're all shaking our heads going, how did we end up back here? Don't, didn't we learn anything? And why didn't we invest sooner? All right. Merritt Stiles, Ontario NDP education critic. Got to leave it there for now, but I appreciate the time and the conversation, Merritt. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening and thanks for downloading the pod as always. Just a reminder, you can catch the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern at 640toronto.com. Find us on Spotify by searching my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.